Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are looking at the theme of defiance in Avatar Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. So to get us started, we have a quote, and this quote comes from season three of Avatar Last Airbender, and you'll know when it's from. I guess you just don't know people as well as you think you do. You miscalculated. I love Zuko more than I fear you. You do love Zuko. I do love Zuko, although I, if I had to meet her, I would also be terrified of Azula. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It really puts May's actions in perspective. Totally, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I I think that this is a defining moment for many characters' journeys. This is when Azula starts to break, when she sees the the method that she has used to control and manipulate people, fear, no longer be the most powerful thing in those people's lives. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a... Great moment because you get to see defiance on both May and Tylee's part. Mm. So May is defying Azula and defying her uncle, mm-hmm. right? Who is the warden of the Boiling Rock and her nation. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's that too. It's also giving up her privileged position mm-hmm. and putting herself against the most powerful nation mm-hmm. state in the in the world. And one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful person in in that exactly. uh, country. So, yes, it's a big thing to do, but also she just she doesn't just do it and be like, "I love him more than I fear you." She's like adds an extra layer of defiance. Like, I guess you don't know people as well as you think you do. And, you know, you miscalculated. These are jabs that will really get to mm-hmm. Azula because she prides herself on being able to manipulate others, being able to understand others well enough so that she can be steps ahead so that she can manipulate them and things like that. And May is just being like, now you failed here. And not only did you fail... I don't actually love you. Like, because she's saying that she loves Zuko and then she's juxtaposing that to fearing her. So it's like clearly saying like, no, we aren't just friends, you know. This is a coercive relationship. Totally. Which I think is also useful because we don't see her recruited by Azula the same way we see Ty Lee recruited. Mm -hmm. Where Ty Lee is clearly threatened by Azula and May is just bored. And so willing yeah. to do whatever she can, you know, with Azula, but they both defy Azula here. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the thing that's interesting, too, because Ty Lee does it because she cares about May, yeah. you know. She wasn't willing to defy Azula for herself mm. when she was scared of her being at every performance until... She got burned, basically. Yeah. Or I saw that even as Tylee being afraid for the circus, being afraid well, for there's that too, yeah. you know the rest of the people who are working and and watching. That. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she she wasn't willing to do it for herself, just mm-hmm. because this is her dream and what she wanted to do, and she loved doing it. But she was willing to defy Azula for me. Yeah, a really good moment. Mm-hmm. Well. 
Why don't we go into our analysis then? I was supposed to bring a character. Supposed to as in you didn't? No, I didn't. Oh, okay, uh, and good. so I decided to talk about Zuko again because I always want to talk about no, Zuko. No, you can't. No. As uh, much as... I told him before we recorded, I'm like, <laughs> you can't pick Zuko <laughs> because you pick Zuko like every time you can pick a character. It's true. So. Um, <laughs> Because I love Zuko so much. Uh, and it's not like he's not defiant in the series. But I decided there was uh, another character who I thought was actually more compelling to talk about. Zaheer. Oh, Zaheer. Yeah, no, he's a great character for us. Yeah, so Zaheer is the leader of the Red Lotus, the, the main antagonist in season three of Legend of Korra. I think Zaheer is interesting because he is a villain. And... One thing that, that often happens in fiction that deals with powers and superheroes and other kinds of things is that the villains tend to be the ones who actually have the most agency and are trying to change society. And the heroes mm. are the ones who try to stop them from doing that. And and typically the villains are going too far to do so, right? They're resorting to terrorism and violence and these other types of things. But... You know, Superman doesn't, he stands for what truth, justice, and the American way, I guess, at one point. Those things all seem to be noxymorons. Like <laughs> <laughs> that. And yeah, it, it doesn't mean anything. Whereas a villain like Poison Ivy is one who believes that humans are destroying the world and, and destroying I mean, plants and things. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's an eco terrorist as a response, but you know. I get it. She's just giving a voice to the plants. <laughs> what they would want to do to humans yeah. if they could. Yeah. And so Zaheer, I think, is the best example of how this tends to be a trend, particularly in Legend of Korra, where these are villains who do want to change the world in some way. Amon, Unalak, Zaheer, and Kuvira are all striving for some kind of change. And Zaheer, I think, is the most radical of them in the change that he wants to see. And we actually see him defy so many things in the series. We see him defying governments. Any government would be one in which he is defined of because he believes that order in any sense is the incorrect way of nature. It's, it's an anathema to nature. He believes that disorder is the natural way of things. Well, unlike any form of centralized power, it doesn't have to be you know, in some big government, but even in small ways of centralized power is oppressive. Exactly. Which I wouldn't disagree yeah, with. Yeah, he's, he's not wrong. <laughs> Again, don't love the terrorism. <laughs> no, but... not, not my favorite thing. <laughs> but his, his, he makes interesting points. But he goes beyond that. He, he defies uh, cultural norms, at least some of our cultural norms. His relationship with Pali, I think, is really interesting because she towers over him. Mm -hmm. And she is arguably more powerful than him. Certainly she was I before mean, she can he got airbending. things exactly. up with her mind. Yeah. You know, that is a relationship that you don't see a ton of. But what you do mm -hmm. see is transgressive, at least in the society that, is be that the show is being created in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He also transgressed norms, I think, outside of that. Uh, we see most people, even if they are not benders and even after the, the Hundred Year War, sticking in many ways with their culture, with their nation. And he is someone who is not an airbender, but who loved the poetry of Guru Lahima and who studied all these other kinds of things that I think was, yeah, it's it's not conforming to 
typical expectations of what should be known. As made clear in that, I think Tenzin's the only person we know who knows who Gerudahiva is (laughs) at that time. But he also defies things beyond that. He defies the laws of gravity. (laughs) One of his his main... Now I just want to sing Defying Gravity. (laughs) 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 Would that be his theme song? That would definitely be his theme song. Yeah, but that, that, that is such a defining moment for him is his ability to fly and do an airbending technique that has not been done for centuries. Mm-hmm. And even things that other airbenders don't think are possible. Exactly. Yeah. And ultimately, his plan with Korra is to defy the cosmology of the world, the existence of the avatar and the way that the avatar has led to the separation of humans and spirits through the destruction of the Avatar itself. And the Avatar is such a kind of central part of the cosmology of the world that, you know, this is a really radical thing. More so, I would definitely say, than overthrowing a government. It's, you know, overthrowing something that has lasted for hundreds of generations. So I think that he's an interesting character because he is someone who, though we don't really ever see him get particularly angry or or out of control, he is one who kind of in this calm, logical way looks at all sorts of different structures and hierarchies in the world and defies them and believes, as you said, that any hierarchy is oppressive and any way in which equality and freedom is limited is oppressive and needs to be overthrown and is in fact unnatural and that he needs to allow the world to you know break the chains that these oppressors are putting on it mm-hmm. and so really in yeah in in both series i couldn't think of a character who was more defiant of the world that they were in than mm-hmm. he was yeah definitely and i love that you brought up his relationship with Pali because it I wouldn't have remembered that, but you do see those like striking moments where they're standing on level ground and you see that she's significantly taller than him. And I love seeing that because that should be completely normalized in our society. It's not because of the gendered paradynamics that exist in our society, but just that small thing. I love like getting into a kid's show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Seep into your minds, children. Now I sound so creepy. But, <laughs> <laughs> but also, I think he's fascinating because even in the end, even when he fails at what he's trying to accomplish and he is jailed, he even defies that as a punishment hmm. system because he is able to get out of that confinement into the spirit world mm. and like be free there which is also really interesting absolutely and and he defies strict narrative categories of protagonist or antagonist because when Cora comes to him, he helps her and he genuinely wants to help her because now she is standing against someone who is trying to use order <laughs> to create a yeah. fascist dictatorship. And and so he stands by his principles. Right. And oh my goodness. I just realized it's like Merlin going to the dragon from the BBC show Merlin. Antagonist, protagonist. <laughs> we don't know. They're chained up. You have to go to them for advice. That's. That's kind of what it is. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But what plot did you have to discuss? 
Yeah, so this plot point has been mentioned in our podcast in, in the past, but and I'm sure it will not be the last time it is mentioned <laughs> because it's just, it's so significant and it's so powerful. So I want to talk about Aang's defiance of violence through his choice for pacifism for nonviolent action. And it's like, oh, well, we could wait for violence for that. But I was like, no, I want to talk about it for defiance mm. because I think pacifism is a defiant act mm. and i think a lot of people confuse it with like passive you know but it, it's not that it, it's actually in not a lot passivism of... <laughs> it's pacifism <laughs> yes it's not that totally legit word uh <laughs> But yeah, it often is harder to be pacifist than it is to use the violent conventions of of society and history and all of that. And so I love it because, you know, you see him going about in a relatively nonviolent way. You know, he's, he's a vegetarian. He is an airbender and even in his airbending you know we're able to see in legend of korra (laughs) some korra and zaheer use airbending in more violent and Mm. more like less avoiding conflict ways and more like using it to propel conflict yeah yeah korra's (laughs) air punches are (laughs) the first time she ever uses airbending she air punches exactly yeah exactly (laughs) and but ang does it in this much more traditional way of, yeah. of doing airbending. So so we get to see that, and then it all is coming to the culmination of the show where he has to make this choice whether to stick with his principles, his beliefs, everything he's been taught that all life is sacred. And so when he finally does make that choice at the very end, I just, I love that it is defying so many different things. So like he is defying societal norms of what's expected of the Avatar. The Avatar is expected to bring the Fire Lord down and end this war through violent means if necessary, which pretty much are going to be necessary. Mm-hmm. And he is defying his immediate community, Team Avatar, all telling him, you have to do this. And he's defying in, in sort of, in a way, his ancestors, right? all of the avatars that have come before him. He goes and he talks to four of them asking for their advice. And he finally, you know, he's like, oh, of course I should have gone to talk to an airbender avatar but even she tells him you have to sacrifice this thing like Mm. yes you've been taught this but you are meant to bring peace and balance and so you can't live the same way that other airbenders would and uphold those same principles and in doing all of that i think it's like it's really defying ideas of cause and effect this must happen in order to have this be the outcome which i think is a really big temptation just in lived life because we see cause and effect all the time it's hard to operate outside of that and not make assumptions and not kind of narrow our view to only be this is the only way that this can happen and to like open that up to other possibilities that other people wouldn't see his possibilities and then he figures out how to do a new thing in that space which is awesome and beautiful and i love it but i think also his decision to 
not kill is defying toxic masculinity. That whole like ending sequence before he goes into the Avatar state is just defying that because it's this like thin vegetarian boy dressed in monk attire, you know, coming up against this jacked emperor, you know, who is trying to kill him and thousands of, of others. And Aang still refuses to use violence to defeat Ozai and puts like this person in front of him's humanity in front of some goal and puts that person's humanity in front of the pressure to be the savior and the hero because it could have not worked, right? Mm. He could have just been killed. He could have let down the whole world, but he didn't. It is just not this classic hero savior story. Well, they got to do what they got to do to save the day and protect everyone else. He wasn't protecting himself, and he was potentially putting the rest of the world at, at risk, um, which is not that kind of male narrative mm. of, of how you go about things. And lastly, I think it's, it's defying colonialism, but doing so in a way that is defying war narratives and the myth that violence solves problems Mm -hmm. and it's this unfortunate but necessary tool yeah that actually that's a really great point because it it reminds me of post-colonial studies Mm -hmm. um and you know it's often been kind of boiled down to the tactics of our oppressors will not free us Mm -hmm. but essentially that in order to truly combat imperialism, colonialism, these things that have happened historically and continue to exist in our world today, we cannot use ideas of capitalism. We cannot use ideas Mm. of military violence to stop them. We have to completely reshape the paradigm in which we have relationships with each other and the environment and other Mm -hmm. communities. And in a way that is yeah, that what the stand is doing is that it's saying that I am rejecting imperialism, not just I'm rejecting your imperialism, but I am rejecting the tactics and tools that are used by imperialists, including violence, including mm-hmm. the destruction of people, even if it puts me at more risk mm-hmm. in the moment, um, even if it makes it less likely that I will succeed. Is success true success when you are continuing the use of these tools that are themselves immoral. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a incredibly difficult thing and it does come with so much risk and you saying that it, it reminds me of a conversation I remember in college talking about feminism and like how do we defy the patriarchy without using any patriarchal tools Mm. you know um it it can be difficult when the patriarchy created most you know structures in the world yeah so all that to say i love ang (laughs) (laughs) i admire him so much love him and yes i just it gives me so much life that this is how the show ends and his compassion and his unwillingness to other and dehumanize the enemy is 
what makes him so different than so many, basically almost everyone in the world. Absolutely, you know? yeah. But before I talk too long about Aang, <laughs> <laughs> why don't we move on to your compelling question for me? Sure. I was wondering if you see a significant distinction between deviance and defiance hmm. in the characters and actions of Avatar and Korra. Yeah, that's that's interesting. One of the first things that's coming to mind is Boomy, Tenzin, and Kaya's brother. Hmm. I think the way that he is an airbender is not defiant. I think it's deviant. It's being an airbender in a different way just because that's who he is, not with an intention of defying the... I mean, every once in a while, he just really likes to annoy his brother. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of it is just like, this is him and how he operates in the world rather than he's being defiant for a specific reason because he wants to change the structure because he finds the powers oppressive or things mm. like that. Comparing that to, like, Katara and her coming up against Paku, she was being defiant of this patriarchal structure that said that because she's a girl, she can't learn this type of waterbending and so that wasn't being deviant that was being defiant and so i i wonder how much has to be intentional mm. for it to be deviant versus defiant yeah what were you thinking yeah I, I was thinking similarly you know how much is it intentional and how much that how does that intentionality change things and actually katara's defiance of paku and and that sexist structure was another example, but for me, I was thinking of it as in comparison with Toph's deviance from typical feminine gender roles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how Katara is there, like you said, being more defiant, saying, this rule that exists is wrong and I'm standing up against it. Whereas Toph is just naturally someone who likes picking her toes and her nails and, mm -hmm. you know, is brash and is in these many ways not. Likes to send boulders at people. Exactly. But she doesn't do it in a way that I think is outwardly defiant and intentional. It's not like someone is telling her, you shouldn't do this, and she does it because she sh feels like she should have the freedom to do it. Mm -hmm. She just does it. And yeah, and maybe her participating in the earthbending wrestling <laughs> pro wrestling you know sort of competitions like maybe that was defiance of her parents rather than just deviance but i think her general personality yeah that's that's just her going about life being her which is very interesting though too because while i think she's definitely defying the expectations and desires of her parents she's still doing that in secret mm -hmm. she doesn't tell them about it and so yeah i just i think it's a really interesting dynamic but I also think that's something that is a lot of Toph's character growth is that she f becomes more comfortable in her skin so that by the end, when her parents do want to take her in, she invents metal bending mm -hmm. to do what she wants to do with her own friends. Mm -hmm. I also think that if there's something that she wanted to do and someone told her she couldn't do it because she was a girl, she would also be defiant the way the guitar was. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's how she was towards metal bending. What? I can't do this? 
oh, I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. And and it's one of the reasons I, I love Toph's characters because I think that that natural deviance from those gender roles is, in the production standpoint, a really important act because as much as I, I appreciate how Katara stands up to overt systemic sexism, the representation of women who are not traditionally feminine, I think is helpful in allowing us to build a culture in which those expectations are themselves broken down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think another place that I see it would be with Aman and Tarlock. Hmm. Because Tarlock not using bloodbending basically throughout the show until the very end is not deviant at all Mm. but it's defiant of his father Mm. his father isn't even around anymore but it's still i think both of them were living in ways that defied their father's oppression and abuse for amon it was to stand up against the hegemonic power that bending can be mm-hmm. in the world which was both i think deviant and defiant yeah but yeah for tarlock he goes into politics and just doesn't use his power and being able to have that power and not using it i think is the defiance totally yeah well why don't we go to your question for me Yeah, so my question is just what social norms do you see being defied in the show? And so we just talked about a couple, but what else are you thinking? And that can be like social norms being defied within the show and also like if the show is defying social norms Mm. in our society. Yeah. One of the things that came to mind was how the metal bending clan kind of defies things that we see as realities of society where Mm. every character is able to find what motivates them and what they're passionate about and utilize whatever gifts they have in that arena you know we kind of see this as as it's almost presented as utopian in a way where you can be an artist you can be an athlete you can be a, a great metal bender an architect you know all these very very different things but how much that comes with you have to have the resources to feed yourself protect yourself (laughs) so i see that as as kind of showing how society might be able to defy the norms of you just need to get a job and you need to work hard and do things that you hate and make all these small compromises throughout your life because the world is hard and you just need to do it Mm -hmm. and Many of Sue's kids are living a life that's free from those kinds of limits that would make them have to make those compromises. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of cool, just conceptually with metal bending, that it was transgressing the standard rules Mm. of bending and then this metal bending clan is also doing that like this doesn't need to just be a survival thing this doesn't need to be a military thing like we can take this and do all sorts of great things necessary things but also just passion projects you know and beautiful things and Mm -hmm. yeah and and i've never really thought of this before but because it is so unique and so amazing in that way 
it makes sense that a character like Su Yin, who was so much of a rebel that she was a criminal as a child, mm-hmm. as a youngster, mm-hmm. that she would be someone who would help to create such a colony because that takes a kind of radical reimagining of what the society you want to be a part of looks like. So yeah, now I'm I'm kind of bringing it back to your question. I'm seeing the entirety of that city as in defiance of the cultural norms and the societal norms that exist within the entire world of Avatar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And obviously, unfortunately, we didn't get to see this much again because of the genocide, but airbenders being nomadic, that's definitely defying social norms. Certainly of, yeah, of our, the, our, our the wider age. Well, but even in their world, right? They're, they're the only people that do that. And yeah. the, the biggest, most powerful nations don't, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. yeah. Were there other areas that you saw this? Yeah, I was also thinking about like, reincarnation mm. into different genders and how that's definitely defying social norms and i just i love that moment when ang's on kyoshi island and there's like all of those people there and they're like looking up at the kyoshi statue and they're like so that was you in a past life it's like yeah and then <laughs> they're just like oh you were so pretty you know and i just like i love that you know gender transgressing mm-hmm. like all these things that it's just like this reincarnation process does that totally your past life was a woman your past life was you know we don't get to see any that we know of non-binary people but yeah i i just appreciate that <laughs> totally I think that Korra and Asami is another defying moment, too, even though it's more implied than, than explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember it being a big deal. This, and this was before I watched the series. I, I knew because I was on Tumblr and <laughs> yeah. anyone who was on Tumblr at the time knew, you knew. <laughs> <laughs> how Korra ended. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. Anything else? I was also thinking about how Aang not feeling any sense of loss from not knowing biological parents, like Mm. not having that as a part of their culture and having like no desire to learn about them. Like that just defies so many media norms. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I can't understand because I I didn't grow up in a situation um, without knowing my biological parents. So I I can't speak to that, but we definitely see it so much in media of just like this drama point. And I don't think everybody feels that way, you know. Um, Anecdotally, from some people I've talked to, that hasn't been their experience. And so... Yeah, I just, I love how it's just, it doesn't need to be a plot point. It's it's a non-issue for him because he doesn't have this nuclear family ideal. And that is so driven in our society and media and in, in the world, just in culture in general. And I just, I love how that's just like, it's not a thing for him. Totally, yeah. And kind of lastly, just like, obviously amazing that, this is a U.S. show where all of the characters are Asian and none of them can be the, the token 
person of color or, you know, and there's no white saviors involved. Like, you know, these things are just not there. They're absent from it. And, um, yeah, that's, that's definitely defying social norms in the United States. Totally. Absolutely. But why don't we move into our missed opportunities? What do you have? My missed opportunity is, is kind of going back to what I mentioned before with how villains are often the ones who have more narrative agency. They're the ones who want to see more radical change in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's interesting how Korra becomes, in many ways, someone who is working to maintain governments that we see as problematic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Korra seems to be a more defiant character than Aang, certainly. And yet she's the one who is still working with Republic City, who is... Working with the police. Working with the police. (laughs) Which just seems like a bad idea. (laughs) I mean, in general, but with Korra specifically. (laughs) Yeah, and and fighting against these radical uprisings. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's really interesting how she kind of finds this space there. But I, I do find it at times having a little bit less weight. I think that one of the great things about narratively having Aang ripped out of his time and brought into one that is out of balance and unjust is that he then is the person who is trying to change things. Aang is fighting against the hegemonic power that exists in their world. Korra is maintaining the world that Aang built. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah, I just, I feel like there could be a little bit more there there. There could be something more... There there? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There could be more to chew on than they really do in Legend of Korra because Mm -hmm. this is a world that, sure... You know, Republic City is more democratic than the world was beforehand. But we still see these these issues propping up. And now we have capitalism. <laughs> which... Oh, joy, that helps everything. <laughs> exactly. So there's all new forms of hierarchies. And the huge kind of transgressive acts that Korra ends up doing end up being more focused on humans and spirit relationships. Mm-hmm. which aren't really the core of the dynamics that we see throughout most of the series. And so if they're she's... They're not the core of it? They're not. Oh, that, that's good. <laughs> I enjoy that. You're welcome. <laughs> I learned these things from you. Yes. You spent too much time around me, clearly. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so I just would have loved to see a little bit more of Korra seeing inequalities and defying structural oppression rather than being an ally with it because there are larger threats against it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's interesting because Cora brings up some really fascinating ideas, but I think it kind of gets around some of the ramifications of actually dealing with it mm-hmm. by putting them in their most extreme form mm-hmm. because Cora doesn't end up listening to any of the non-benders complaints about how bending is used as violence against them yeah they 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 get a new president who's a non-bender and that's basically it exactly representation is important but it doesn't fix things exactly just representation won't fix structural problems we have black senators in the senate 
including yeah. black Republican senators <laughs> in the Senate. <laughs> that can't fix anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then you have, yeah, Zaheer, like we were talking about, some valid criticisms of power structures, but then, yeah, he is going to violently dismantle these things, and so... The Earth Queen was terrible. She shouldn't have been assassinated, but she was awful. She was awful, yes, but yeah. Good job using the oppressor's tactics here. Right. Well, and Learn that's the from thing is, Aang before you. I'm guessing Guru, guru Lahima wasn't a <laughs> violent airbender guru. <laughs> like all people, he just takes the parts that he wants. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I totally agree with that. Well, what's your missed opportunity then? Yeah, my missed opportunity is just that, like, usually defiance is met with resistance Mm -hmm. and at least an attempted forced compliance we see this throughout human history whether it's women's rights queer rights peasant revolts uh new religious sects all of these things are met with an attempted crushing power if not a crushing power right Mm -hmm. i think we see some important moments of resistance and defiance in the show for sure but some of it yeah I just kind of wonder like for example what it would mean for the show to open with Katara fighting with her brother and his sexism right and then her to encounter that in the northern water tribe but then like to keep having instances throughout the show where she keeps having to like come up against this and her to fight for equality and tough you're not conforming to what a girl is supposed to be all in and really annoying quotes and and so yeah j- just stuff like that I, I kind of wonder like is it better or worse for kids to see this continued struggle that they mm. keep having because that's realistic <laughs> that's what you're going to face in this world or is it better to see them fight that and then get to kind of go about life in a freer way? You know, I, I don't know. Yeah, and I think that there could be something there, too, about intersectionality. You know, it's important to learn that just because you have power in one sense as a bender, as if you're a Sami, as a capitalist overlord (laughs) (laughs) you know just because you have power in one way does not mean that the other ways in which the world might affect you are going to be eradicated but it does mean that they can often be lessened or you have new tools to navigate them that people who are not as privileged as you in other ways still you know a, a woman who is poor and not a bender is not going to be able to have the same tools as someone who is a bender or is wealthy or is both Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm So they all might experience sexism, but those experiences and the ways they can deal with them are going to be very different. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, what even would the rest of Korra's life be post coming out with her girlfriend, Asami, Mm. and like being the avatar in this incredibly public role? Yeah. I could imagine that there would be a bit of pushback. Totally. I mean... People don't even like her when she's, like, actually helping them, (laughs) you know, so. True. Yeah, but why don't we talk about what is our takeaways from from this discussion? Compliance is the answer? 
that's that's my takeaway right? yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> you do know how much i hate conflict exactly <laughs> in that way i'd be an airbender <laughs> And then you end up Aang and you're like, why? <laughs> I mean, I think that it shows how great and how nuanced a show is that we could go this entire episode and have all these really interesting things to talk about. And we didn't even mention Zuko once. <laughs> all right. I mean, just at the beginning. That's true. Yeah. But he was in the side. Yeah. But yeah, his, his, his defiance of his father and turning that as i've talked about previously <laughs> I, which is to say that the show isn't just a show with one or two really great characters mm-hmm. it is a show that has a lot of fascinating things to talk about and has amazing world building that works both on the narrative level in seeing characters defy or deviate from the norms within their world, but also is defying conventions and oppressive structures and and tropes within our world as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about you? What's your takeaway? Yeah, I think my takeaway is that defiance is difficult. I think the show defies a lot of things that are really important to defy like some of the narratives that we're talking about some of the governmental systems that a lot of us take for granted and things like that so love that it's great and especially that it was made as a kid's show i think sometimes though it it is difficult because there are so many different structures like even the structure of a TV show, even how narratives ebb and flow, like for certain things to be a more meaningful discussion would be to continue these things after mm. the like general climax point and then you have some resolution and then it's over. And I think sometimes it's hard to even be as aware of everything that we could or should be defying because of where we're situated, what our context is. For example, when we were talking about in our shame episode about this kind of more individualistic, mm. westernized idea of shame versus a more East, Southeast Asian, maybe South Asian ideas of shame and like the fact that it was so centered in kind of this Western narrative, you know, and in our ability episode, yes, it's wonderful that we have some characters that are differently able, that Toph is blind, that the waterbender that's a part of the Red Lotus doesn't have arms. But even within that, they're finding ways for them to have arms or to be able to see through bending. And so I think sometimes it's good and it's like steps in the right direction, but like how do we take it further and how do we be even more aware of the perspective we're coming from and what defiance we need to bring into that as well. Yeah, very, very good point. And you highlight the unfortunate reality that, yeah, this is a show being made by Nickelodeon, which (laughs) will most likely not be anti-capitalist because they like their money. (laughs) Big companies like their money? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But of course, on the other hand, I'm also very glad that Nickelodeon created Avatar Studios and now apparently we're going to be getting a bunch more movies and stuff. So like, 
yeah, you know, I clearly have some things <laughs> I need like, to challenge and defy within myself. You're like, take our money. <laughs> this is what capitalism is made for. Exactly. <laughs> well, could you let us know what we'll be discussing next week? Yeah, so we're going to be returning to Star Wars, and we're going to be looking at it through the theme of race. Okay, race in Star Wars. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. You can find links to our social media and our website in the episode description, or you can join us at patreon.com slash lines if you want to become a supporter of the podcast, get access to all sorts of extra content, and help keep the show sustainable. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com or search for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.